This is episode 293 of That Shakespeare Life. Just like the work of William Shakespeare, That Shakespeare Life is supported by listeners just like you who sign up to be our patrons. You can help support the show, contribute directly to programming, and access a library of bonus Shakespeare history content, including bonus episodes of our show, when you join us as a patron today at patreon.com slash that Shakespeare Life. If you'd like to try out some of the history you learn about here on our show, then you should consider Experience Shakespeare. That's the membership here at That Shakespeare Life, and we offer digital history activity kits that work like science labs for Shakespeare history. It's the best way to cook, play, and create your way through the life of William Shakespeare. Learn more at CassidyCash.com slash member, and stay tuned after the episode for even more details. Hi, I'm Nini McKayla, historical costumier, tailor and author of The Tudor Tailor, Reconstructing 16th Century Dress. Another great method for studying the history of William Shakespeare includes listening to this. It's That Shakespeare Life with my friend Cassidy Cash. And these five styles of cap were all made from knitted yarn which was then fulled to firm it and give it a fluffy surface which could be raised and then turned into a, if you like, a faux fur or a fake velvet. That was an aspirational kind of hat for people in Shakespeare's world. Welcome to That Shakespeare Life with Cassidy Cash. Cassidy believes that if you desire to successfully learn or perform Shakespeare's plays, then understanding the real life and history of William Shakespeare himself is a must. That Shakespeare Life is the podcast that helps you go beyond the curtain of some of Shakespeare's most iconic works and explore the world of early modern England as Shakespeare would have lived it, learning from the writers, historians, and performers who know it best. And now, here's Cassidy. William Shakespeare's father, John Shakespeare, spent a great deal of time in trouble with the government over his illegal sale of wool. Several court documents show that John Shakespeare was investing in wool, then selling it on to others. He didn't have a license to sell the wool, which is why he was so regularly in trouble, paying fines and risking jail time. What the records of his dealings demonstrate is that the wool was valuable enough of a commodity in England that John Shakespeare felt it was worth these risks, and he wanted to continue dealing in the wool anyway. Wool was one of England's and later the UK's major exports, and Stratford-upon-Avon, Shakespeare's hometown, was home to sheep farmers who produced the wool that could be sold internationally. In fact, some finished wool products, like Monmouth caps, for example, were so well-known for their quality that they are even referenced by name in Shakespeare's play, Henry V, when Flewellen talks about wearing leeks in your Monmouth cap. Here today to tell us more about the wool industry, the farmers who were raising the sheep, products made of wool in the 16th and 17th century, and exactly why someone would wear a leak inside of your Monmouth cap is our guest, Jane Malcolm Davis. Dr. Jane Malcolm Davis is Associate Professor of Textile Analysis at the University of Copenhagen in the interdisciplinary parchment project Beasts to Craft. Jane leads Knitting in Early Modern Europe, an initiative begun during her fellowship at the Center for Textile Research. Jane is the co-author of the typical Tudor that looks at the history of ordinary dress from the Tudor period, and she's co-director of the Tudor Tailor, a team of researchers which publishes resources to promote the accurate reconstruction of historic dress. Jane and Nina Michaela recently examined a farthingale 
from the Tudor period, which they performed forensic analysis on, including x-rays that revealed exciting new discoveries about this type of clothing and how it was used. See links to this project as well as more information on Jane and her work in the show notes for today's episode. Hello, Jane. Welcome to That Shakespeare Life. Hi, thanks very much for having me. John Shakespeare was fined several times for selling wool without a license in Stratford-upon-Avon. It's one of the more famous things we know about John Shakespeare. But was the wool that lucrative? I mean, was it something that was profitable enough that it would have been worth the penalty of these fines and even risking potential jail time for him to try and sell the wool anyway? I think it's fair to say that it was one of the most profitable commodities in Shakespearean Britain. It was used up and down the social scale for all kinds of different clothing, all kinds of different furnishings. It was used for stuffing things. It was used to pad. There were so many uses of wool, even the worst quality wool, that it was definitely a commodity worth trading in. It was very strictly controlled who could and couldn't do what with wool. So it's not surprising to read of people like John wishing to risk. Uh, maybe even imprisonment and certainly fines for trading outside the law. So he wasn't a rogue by any means. There were a lot of people operating this way of trying to work around those restrictions. I think there were lots of chances in Shakespeare's world, not only in, in the wool trade, but the wool trade was heavily regulated and it probably became common practice to find ways of working around the rules. And yeah, I think he'd be in probably very good company, both below him in social status, but also higher in social status. Well, when it comes to examining the kinds of things that got made with wool, in an article for Piecework magazine, Jane writes about five different categories of knitted caps. These were popular in the 16th century, and there's a diagram we'll share in the show notes for today's episode where there's like five different styles, and they all kind of have different features. Jane, can you tell us what the uses or function were for each kind of cap? The caps are probably my favorite topic of conversation when it comes to uses of wool in the 16th century. And that's because I'm particularly interested in knitting in early modern Europe. And these five styles of cap were all made from knitted yarn, which was then fulled to firm it and give it a fluffy surface which could be raised and then turned into a, if you like, a faux fur or a fake velvet. That was an aspirational kind of hat for people in Shakespeare's world. They came in five categories based on the archaeological evidence we have available to us. There may well have been more, But I've seen many, many of these caps, and they are noteworthy for the fact that there are so many of them surviving in collections all over the world. They're unusual as survivals of Tudor clothing because they're actually typical of ordinary people. They're not necessarily only associated with the elite. And of course, it's often the precious things that survive rather than the things used by ordinary Tudors. So there's what we might recognize as a beanie hat, so an unstructured, pull on your head style cap and actually they survive least in the archaeological record however they do appear in artworks by Bruegel for example and they are characteristic of ordinary working men keeping their heads warm often trudging through the snow in um, as I say in the works of Bruegel there were also coif caps these were 
more structured head hugging styles with often cheek pieces that came down to tie under the chin. They're sometimes thought to be um, ear flaps, but in fact, on reconstruction, it seems that they're more comfortably designed to be tied along your your cheeks to keep you warm when the weather is cold. And those could be, with some styles, tipped up onto the top of the head and buttoned on the top of the cap. And some styles like that do actually have the buttons remaining. Then there are three types of what I call flat caps, and they differ in terms of how their brims are arranged. Now, in the Tudor period, brims were actually called turfs. That's the original fray, uh, original word for the brim of a cap. It could be single brimmed. There aren't so many of those. That is a brim that has no break in it. There were some which appear to have had a neck flap, which could be tipped up to keep your neck warm. And then there was what I think is probably the most recognisable style of flat cap for the 16th century. And that's a split brimmed cap. So it has two brims that are rounded at the edges. And we see that characteristically worn, for example, by members of the Moore family in Holbein's paintings and drawings of them, and by many, many other Tudor people um, in artworks of the time. I'm going to track down some of these paintings and put them in the show notes so you can see these different designs. I know the coif type with the straps on the side have appeared in a lot of historically based films. I won't say historical documentaries necessarily, but when they're trying to recreate this time period, that one makes a lot of appearances. So you've probably seen this and you can check out the show notes for the paintings to compare. But I know one particular cap that I like a lot from this time period is one that does actually show up in Shakespeare's plays. And that is the Monmouth cap. It was particularly popular for Shakespeare's lifetime, mentioned specifically in the play Henry V. Jane, why was this particular cap so important? And why does Shakespeare talk about it wearing leeks in your Monmouth cap? Leek is, you know, the green onion-like vegetable why why would we put this in our cap so the monmouth cap geographically is associated with the borders of wales monmouth has gone back and forth between wales and england over time and the monmouth cap was a name given to a particular style of cap and i think the jury is out on precisely which style of cap the monmouth cap was there's a famous example in monmouth in the museum which is more or less a beanie style hat. However, the word Monmouth cap also is associated with tall crowned knitted caps that mimic felt hats. Either way, if it was a beanie or it was a tall crowned brimmed cap, it was the habit of Welsh people. And I say this with confidence because I am actually a Welsh person. It was the habit of Welsh people to wear leeks in their caps, partly for identification, but specifically on St. David's Day, the 1st of March. And when I was a child, we would have a St. David's Day Eisteddfod and we all wore leeks in our hats, either real ones or made of silk. So it's not surprising that the, the character in Shakespeare's work who applauds the leek in a hat is Flewellyn. And this was Shakespeare's attempt to mimic the name Llewellyn without really being able to understand the double L was what produced the characteristic sound. So he used an FL to approximate it. 
So he is recreating the character being patriotic as a Welsh would have been. That's right. It's a patriotic symbol. And interestingly, more recently, the daffodil has become a symbol of Wales. And if you ever watch a rugby match on the television, you'll see leaks, huge blow up ones, daffodils. And daffodils in Welsh are actually called Kenhinen Beder, which is Peter's leak. So it's an alternative leak if you prefer to wear that. I will never look at this character the same way. I'm so delighted to know the meaning behind what that is for. But I know that caps were not far from the only thing that was made from wool in the 16th and 17th century. You've talked about stuffing and padding and anything that you could use wool for. There was a wide range of them. And I wonder if you could give us some examples. I know there's several, but give us just a few examples of surviving artifacts from this time period of things besides caps that were made from wool in Shakespeare's lifetime. Uh, I think it's true to say that wool was used for many garments. And we have not only extant artifacts, but we have a lot of documentary evidence from people's wills, account books, inventories, which give detailed descriptions of what their clothing was made of, usually in the case of um, wills, in order that they could be identified to be given to the right beneficiary, but with inventories and accounts often to calculate their value. So different types of wool very much made the decision as to how expensive or cheap a particular garment was. And we know that very expensive wools were used for gowns, for example, both men's and women's gowns. And in some cases, clothing that went underneath, like kirtles for women or petticoats, they were made with the more expensive wools in the places where they would show and cheaper wools or even fabrics that were not made of wool in the back parts that would not show when you were fully dressed. So a way of husbanding your resources, being economic with your money, was to make a garment out of two different types of wool or two different types of fabric so that you had the best and most expensive on show. Um, And a good example of that is, for example, a wool called scarlet, which was not always red by the 16th century. Scarlet was the name of the best finished or fulled cloth that was available. It was originally dyed with a red dye, hence the name. But that method of preparing um, woven fabric so that it had a smooth and um, polished surface, which completely hid the weave, that was the characteristic of scarlet. It was a, a dense cloth. And I think 16th century people had the ability to take a quick look at a wool and know the quality of what they were seeing. So you could appraise the value of a person by whether they were wearing, for example, scarlet, or they were wearing one of the wools that came much further down the social scale. For example, the word blanket refers to a very unprocessed wool. The closer the wool is to the sheep, what comes off as fleece, the cheaper and less impressive the wool. The further away it gets from the sheep in terms of its processing, the more expensive and impressive the wool. Well, speaking of the sheep that you would 
keep the wool close to or move it far away from in terms of value, you had to get the wool in the first place to make anything with it, which of course means the sheep were heavily involved. When it comes to wool for Shakespeare's lifetime, were there particular breeds of sheep that were valued for the kind of wool that they produced, or were there varying kinds of sheep that went into the different kinds of wool? There were varying breeds of sheep used for for different purposes. And the most classic division for sheep is whether they are primarily producing milk or primarily producing wool. And they're bred to enhance the production of whichever one the farmer is is wishing to trade in. So the breeds of sheep we know about, which were highly valued, preeminent amongst them was the Lempster breed of sheep, which was known at the time as Lempster or that is the gold that came from the Lempster sheep. But we don't really have Lempster sheep anymore. The the way in which livestock has been bred selectively since the 16th century, there is no such remaining sheep. Even the heritage breeds, as they're called, are very, very far removed from the sheep of the 16th century. So it's quite hard for us to imagine what the wool from these sheep would actually have been like. The nearest equivalent, probably, to the Lempster or today is a sheep called the Ryland. And they were from Herefordshire. So those places like Monmouth, where you have marginal land, they are the best places for raising sheep that produce fine wool. But of course, what everybody really wanted in the 16th century was merino sheep. And they didn't exist in the United Kingdom. In fact, the Basque lands in Spain, where they originated from, very, very heavily protected not only the export of the wool, but also the sheep. So it was a long time before merino sheep could come in and start to improve the breeds that were native um, or well-established in other parts of Europe. And the characteristic of the merino sheep's fibre was it was very, very, very fine. So it was much, much more um, profitable to start interbreeding the existing sheep with the merino sheep once that was possible. Did different areas in the UK specialize in different breeds? I mean, you mentioned that the area there around Monmouth would have been ideal for raising sheep that produced a fine wool. Were there other areas of the UK that were also known for a kind of sheep? The Cotswold sheep are mentioned in legislation which defines what can be charged for knitted caps. The Lempster produces the best knitted caps, so they have the prices and the Cotswold is the next best and this legislation suggests that the caps should actually be marked in order that consumers can tell the difference am I buying a Lempster cap or am I buying a Cotswold cap there were also of course Welsh mountain breeds such as the ones we have today the black Welsh mountain which again I, I can't stress enough how different they are from the original but they are a breed where the name remains and of course Shetland Shetland sheep were prolific. And again, they are seen as a breed that is very close uh, or as close as we can get to the type of sheep that were available in 16th century Britain. And what about in Scotland? Would there have been areas of, I know Shetland sheep would have been in the northern part, but what about the more mainland areas? Were there sheep there as well? 
there were sheep, but they they don't lend their names in the same way to the sheep of note, if you like. There definitely were areas that specialised in um, sheep rearing, but they're not as famous as the Shetland, the Lempster, the Cotswold. And the and the Black and so Welsh. Yeah. Okay. Well, to go from wool sheared from a sheep to something that can be knitted into a sweater is, as you referred to, quite a process. And you can change this process depending on what your purpose is for processing the wool. But I wonder if you could tell us more about the basics of things like wool combing and carding. And what does it actually take to turn the wool of a sheep into a usable yarn that you can then create something from? So I could talk for a very long time about this because the variables of each stage are really quite interesting. But I'll give you a a brief overview and then you can ask me for more detail if there's something that particularly piques your interest. So after you've shorn your your sheep, that fleece needs to be washed um, or scoured, as they would have said at the time. And that largely requires picking out any obvious signs of dirt, twigs, leaves, other debris that may have collected in the sheep's fleece. And from washing so that it can be handled, the fleece needs to be either carded or combed. And carding uses a type of brush that fluffs up the wool rather than sleeks it down. If you want wool that's sleek, you use combs to push the fibres into parallel form. And combed yarn, combed fleece, is what you use to spin worsted yarn. And worsted yarn is usually shiny, tight. It has no fluffy bits coming off it. Whereas combed yarn can be spun, but remains woolly and fluffy. Those two types of spun yarn are what determine the characteristics of the woven cloth from which you make, as I mentioned, scarlet or you make blanket. So frieze, for example, is a is a woolen fabric, which is very thick, very fluffy, very close to the sheep, often undyed. It traps a lot of air. It's very insulating. And that is characteristically made from carded fleece, which has been woolen spun in order to create a fluffy fabric. Whereas a worsted yarn, which has been spun usually tight and usually very silky, that is what's used to make things like fabrics for kirtles, which need to have drape and a silky feel. And the sort of worsteds that became more and more desirable in the 16th century were known as the new draperies and characteristically started to be manufactured in East Anglia, where knowledge of this technology came with the Huguenots from um, parts of Europe where they were fleeing religious persecution. So those are the, the two, I would say, most important distinctions. But of course, you can weave a cloth from a warp that's um, sleek and strong and a weft that's fluffy. And that gives you a different kind of fabric from one which has been worsted in the warp and the weft. That has a great deal more silkiness to it. So this partnering of different types of spun yarn gave an incredible variety of different textures and surfaces. And then once you start adding into the mix the fact that you can use linen, 
you can use in some fabrics like fustian, you could use cotton in the weft, and even silk could be woven with wool, either to give it luster or to make it light. This is why it's very hard for us today to really appreciate the enormous number of fabrics that were available from your basic stuff, which was wool. It's really surprising to me because I don't think of wool as something that has this range of application. I think of it as being a, a really warm material and something that is, but rough, you know, I don't really think of it as something that you could smooth out into this kind of scarlet fabric that you're telling us about. And I'm just excited that that's a thing. I know there's a whole world of exploration there to to uncover in terms of, of the way that these could be used. I do have a question about, I think... It, I'm worried about my pronunciation here, but the frieze, yeah, did I say that correctly? The very woolly, undyed, that's very insulating type wool. I was wondering if that was ever used to make something like a wool sweater. For example, I know the Fair Isle is known for making sweaters in, in these famous patterns, but I don't know if that existed for Shakespeare's lifetime. Did they have things like wool sweaters for people to keep warm in the winter during Shakespeare's lifetime? They did. Freeze is characteristically used to make coats, so an outer garment against the weather. Sweaters at the time were known as waistcoats or petticoats. There are more of these that survive in the 17th century made of silk, but we know that they did exist in the 16th century. They're mentioned, for example, in the wills of sailors as um, close-fitting garments, which they wore as an extra layer for comfort under their outer garments. So in an urban context, a man might wear a petticoat under his doublet, whereas a sailor might wear his petticoat under his cassock. And they were often red. There's a surviving 17th century silk waistcoat that belonged to William III in the Historic Royal Palaces collection. And that is, I think, a very good illustration of how even royalty resorted to wearing this kind of underwear because people were subject to the cold much more than we are today. And it was important for your health to keep warm, especially if you travelled or you worked out of doors. And so it's not surprising to find that these petticoats pop up, not only for men, they are also worn by women. But because they were an undergarment, we don't have as many pictorial references for them. I have seen fragments of a knitted wool waistcoat in Bremen in northern Germany. The fragments are so small and so disparate that it's hard to imagine how you would ever reconstruct them to show the waistcoat as it was. But at the Museum of London, there is actually an infant's petticoat or waistcoat, which is still in very good condition. And if you take a look in The Tudor Child, that the book that I wrote with um, Jane Huggett and Nina McKayla, we actually provide a knitting pattern for recreating that. So there's enough of it remaining for us to be able to understand how it was knitted. I will, if I may, just go back to your point about smoothing out yarn, whether it was woven or it was knitted, because the knitted caps I mentioned, the fulling process was really the important thing for giving them this fake velvet surface and there is actually a, a knitted cap in the collection of the Bern Museum in in Switzerland which was originally catalogued in the 1880s as a silk velvet cap 
when in fact it is made of fulled wool. And it's only over the passage of time that the knitted loops of the knitting are now visible. For many, many years, it was assumed to be a velvet cap. That's how skilled the fullers were. And I should say that the other interesting little nugget that I have for you is that these caps, the flat caps of the 16th century, were legally required in from 1571. They were legally required to be worn on Sundays and holy days by most men and most women, not lords and not maidens. But most people were required to wear knitted caps on Sundays and holy days as a protectionist policy because the cappers went to Parliament and said, we're not um, able to sustain ourselves or our families or all the people we employ. We need people to keep wearing these knitted caps to sustain our industry. And one Henry Shakespeare, uncle of William, was fined for not wearing his knitted cap on Sundays. So even in Shakespeare's family, we have someone who has contravened the rules. And I think he was in very good company, like John Shakespeare. There were many people who didn't wear their knitted caps as they should have done. And it's said to have been a form of protest against the enclosures of land for more sheep to be grazed and more wool to be produced. These enclosures were a threat to the livelihoods of people like Henry Shakespeare, who was a tenant farmer. Obviously, there's a tremendous amount of craftsmanship and just the history of wool and products made from this powerful industry from Shakespeare's lifetime that we are now all very fired up to explore. And I wonder if you could tell us where to begin. What are some of your favorite books or resources you can recommend we use to explore this history further? Well, a very, very long time ago, a man called Michael Ryder devoted his life to the study of sheep. And his immense tome is called Sheep and Man. And it was published in the 1980s, but it does bring together an enormous amount of work on really where sheep began and then how they changed through people's intervention in the natural um, life cycle of the sheep. One of the critical things that occurred was the transformation from hairy sheep to woolly sheep. And we would not have the wool that we have today, nor would the people of Shakespeare's time, if it hadn't been for that critical change from sheep having hair rather than having wool. And you see that in medieval illustrations. Some of the sheep are shown as having hair and some are shown as having wool. And once you've seen it, you sort of can't unsee it. All sheep are either hairy or woolly in many of these kinds of images from the time. So I would recommend Sheep and Man. It's quite a heavy read. It's a bit like putting war and peace on your bedside table. But if it, sheep is something that interests you, it's worth it's worth the effort. So a little dense, but worth going through it because of what it contains. Well, of course, the the Tudor Child, as well as the book, The Tudor Tailor, are also great places to learn more about clothing and products that were made with wool from Shakespeare's lifetime, as well as a whole other host of history. So we will place links to that as well as to Sheep and Man from Michael Ryder in the show notes for today's episode. I should really plug our latest book, which is The Typical Tudor, because that also has knitting patterns in it for all the different styles of caps I've mentioned. And that one goes through the sort of ordinary dress of what the average person would wear. Yes. It also gives 
clear definitions for many of the different kinds of woolen fabrics that were worn and the worsteds that were available at the time. So uh, maybe that's a less heavy going read than Sheep and Man, if anyone wants a, a quick reference for the immense world of wool in Shakespeare's time. I have had a look through the typical tutor. It is an excellent book and I should have mentioned it right off. So I'm glad that you suggested that as well. We'll place links to these in the show notes for today's episode. So make sure you go there to find those links. Now, Jane, we ask everyone this next question here at That Shakespeare Life, and that's What's the one book you would take with you on a deserted island? My friends in England tell me I'm supposed to allow you the complete works of Shakespeare and a copy of the Bible. So your choice would be in addition to those. Well, I'm very happy to have Shakespeare, but I I don't need a copy of the Bible. Thank you. I would rather have a book which comes in six parts in the hope that there is an edition with all six volumes in it. And that is the Dorothy Dunnett Limond series which again is a very dense read. It's set in Scotland in the 16th century. It's full of skullduggery and intrigue around the fictional character of Limond. I love that book because it's just so complex. It's full of mystery, but it also gives an enormous amount of detail about everyday life at the time. If I'm not allowed to have a six-volume set like that, then I'd have Fermat's Last Theorem, which is one of my favorite books to just read over and over and over again. I think you could definitely have the six volumes as well as Thermot's Last Theorem, if you would like. (laughs) But those are both exciting choices for your Desert Island uh, selection. So I think you'd be spending your time in an entertaining way. Absolutely. So what's next for you? What are you working on now that you're excited about? Well, I have still got my Knitting in Early Modern Europe project underway. And I am forever applying for new grants to fund more work on that. So far, we have knitted caps in the database online. We have liturgical gloves, some of them medieval, um, which are knitted in silk. And I really would like to add stockings, which are an important part of the knitted garment world. But the project I'm currently finishing up with my colleague Beatrice Balen from the Museum of London, is looking at a 17th century knitted waistcoat in silk, which was said to have been worn by Charles I when he was beheaded in 1649. It's unlikely that that is true, but we've been doing a lot of work on how it was knitted, what it was knitted from, what it was dyed with, and we hope to be publishing that very soon. We will place links in the show notes where you can follow Jane's work and be sure to see the publication on this knitted garment when it comes out. Jane, Malcolm Davis, thank you so much for being here this week and taking us through the history of wool for Shakespeare's lifetime and really helping us understand what was going on when Shakespeare was writing about Monmouth Caps and Henry V and helping us to really engage with his works a whole lot better for understanding where it comes from. Thank you so much for being here and taking us through this history. This has been a fun conversation. My pleasure. Thanks very much for having me. If you would like to see some of the artifacts that Jane talks about today, including some of the paintings that demonstrate the differences between hairy sheep and woolly sheep, as well as the differences between some of the coiffed caps and flat caps and the various brims that we talked about in today's episode, then you will want to check out the show notes for today's show. We have packed in visual elements that coordinate with the history you're learning about today. Explore all the extra tidbits and find direct links to the research we talk about today, all packed into CassidyCash.com slash 
slash episode 293. That's CassidyCash.com slash EP 293. If you would like to do your own recreating of history and really dive into the life of William Shakespeare, where you can try out some of the history from his life, including games, recipes, and crafts that you can do at home that are exactly what William Shakespeare would have done from his life, then explore Experience Shakespeare. Experience Shakespeare is the membership here at That Shakespeare Life. And not only does it help power the podcast, but it's our place where we really dive into the past. There's activity kits that let you try out 16th century tutors soap balls, or you can learn to play the game of Naughty, which shows up in Shakespeare's Two Gentlemen of Verona. And you can even learn how to make your own Iron Gall ink. There's an entire library of activity kits already available in the membership, and new ones are being added regularly. It's a great way to really enhance your study of Shakespeare's plays by taking a piece of the history that's mentioned in those plays and trying it out in a tangible way. If this sounds fun to you and you like the idea of diving into the 17th century and getting to try out some of this history for yourself, then Join us inside Experience Shakespeare, where you can cook, play, and create your way through the life of William Shakespeare. Sign up today at CassidyCash.com slash member. That's CassidyCash.com slash member. Our show is powered by our patrons. We are only able to do what we do here because our patrons support our work and enable us to be able to reach out to the world's leading experts on history and the life of William Shakespeare every week. To say thank you for being a patron of our show, patrons get special benefits like 40% off of Experience Shakespeare and insider access to the making of our show, including over 150 additional episodes not available on public listening platforms. Patrons get to suggest topic ideas, see sneak peeks, of upcoming episodes, and they can even submit their own questions they'd like to have asked during an interview. If you enjoy learning history with us here each week and want to play a direct role in supporting the work we do here, then you can sign up to be a patron right now at patreon.com slash that Shakespeare life. That's patreon.com slash that Shakespeare life. That Shakespeare life is researched and produced by me, Cassidy Cash. Our audio engineer is Gary Mayholm. That's it for this week. Thank you for listening. I'm Cassidy Cash, and I hope you learned something new about the Bard. I'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to That Shakespeare Life. As always, the best conversations happen after the episode over at CassidyCash.com. Become a part of a vibrant Shakespeare conversation by adding your voice over at the website. Until next time, remember, when you want to know William Shakespeare, you have to go behind the curtain and into That Shakespeare Life.